I'm John Carter in Sydney, Australia, standing on what was once the fatal shore. Now, Robert Hughes is the art critic for Time magazine, and he wrote this national bestseller, The Fatal Shore, which is the epic of Australia's founding. The 160,000 convicts who were sent out here during the 18th and the 19th centuries, this was the entrance to hell. Many of them didn't even make it. The ones who got here were beaten and treated like slaves. It's an amazing story because those people founded a great nation. And Sydney, Australia today is one of the beauty spots of the world. How did it happen? I say, my friend, it was by the grace of God. I'm John Carter. Here in Sydney, Australia, standing on what was once called the fatal shore. And saying to you, dear friend, welcome today to the Carter Report. Would you hold your Bibles up, please? Would you say these words? This is my Bible. This is God's Word. God has a message for me today. His message will give me everlasting life. And make me a better person. I now open my heart to receive God's Word. Amen and amen. Thank you. People today have become very interested in Bible prophecy because of the uncertainty of the times. We have no idea, humanly speaking, what's going to happen next in the Middle East. Iraq was not as easy as we thought it would be. And the Middle Eastern situation between the Jews and the Arabs, who can tell, humanly speaking, what the outcome will be? Then there is Iran and, of course, North Korea. And people are saying, is there a word from the Word of God? Today, I want to take you to the greatest prophecy in the New Testament. And that is the prophecy of Matthew chapter 24. I want you to turn to that prophecy. This prophecy talks about our times. It talks about tomorrow. It talks about the coming of the Messiah and the last days, the great time of trouble. It talks about terrorism. It talks about the Jewish temple. It talks about the judgment day and it talks about your future and mine. So would you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And for a start today, I want you to notice with me out of God's word, verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth. 
Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This prophecy that Jesus gives here is considered to be the greatest prophecy in the New Testament, the greatest prophecy that our Lord ever gave. And I've discovered something of real significance. This prophecy is often taken out of its context. And I want you to notice the context. This prophecy is given in the context of the judgments of God upon religious hypocrites. Look at chapter 23. Look at 23. And notice where this chapter fits. Verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And a person who does not practice what he preaches is a hypocrite, a religious pretender. And in this chapter, chapter 23, that leads into chapter 24, you have the seven woes. I want you to notice them. Verse 5, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. You know what the phylacteries are? Little boxes that contain portions of scripture. But scripture in a box is not going to help you. You need the scripture in the heart. But these people had these little boxes and they put them on their bodies. Jesus said they, they make them big and tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. Jesus here is talking about religious hypocrites. And Matthew chapter 24 is a description of the judgments of God, not only upon a wicked world, but particularly upon those who profess the name of God, but are pretenders. So these people were all show. He said everything they do is to be seen by men. I remember back in Australia when a man, a Christian gentleman gave a million dollars to a great cause. And when he gave it, he had the check magnified about a thousand times so that it stretched across the stage. And as he gave the million dollars, <coughs> in this great church council in Australia, everybody stood up and applauded. Of course, that is the very act 
of a modern day Pharisee. Everything they do is done to be seen by men. Verse 13, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. These were people who drove people out of the church. Even though they were the paragons of piety, they were religious humbugs and drove people out of the church. They were indeed the frozen chosen. They delighted in their orthodoxy and Jesus told them to prepare for hell. Verse 15, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win, win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. These people were indefatigable evangelists and proselytizers who delighted in chalking up at the end of the year all the souls they'd won for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you made them as twice as bad as you are. So these people were the world's greatest pretenders. Read on. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. It is obvious that these people were the very essence of piety and religion and who claimed to love God, loved gold more than they loved God. These people would sell their mothers for a few pieces of gold. These people were the supreme capitalists without the grace of God. Mean, tight-fisted, scheming, shrewd. Scrooge is every one of them. And Matthew 24 describes the judgment of God upon uh, hypocrites. Verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, dill, mint, and cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These people were looking forward to the coming of the Lord. They were looking forward to the coming of Messiah and thus they were Adventists, everyone. Every person who believes in the coming of the Lord is an Adventist, whatever his denomination, and these were tithe-paying Adventists. And Jesus said, you're great in paying your tithe, but you've forgotten the most important thing, and that is the love of God. Mercy and grace Verse 25, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind a Pharisee, 
First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. My friend, they went to church on the Sabbath day. Great Sabbath keepers. And they wore special robes and they carried the scriptures and they looked wonderful. And Jesus said inside, you're filthy. He said, you're like tombs that men walk over. They're whitewashed on the outside. But he said, inside, they stink of dead men's bones. Every type of pride, every type of indulgence was covered up by the piety of these religious humbugs. Verse 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. These were people who made a great pretense of their belief in the spirit of prophecy. They loved the spirit of prophecy and they loved the prophets. The only problem is they did not obey the prophets. But they used the words of the prophets to beat down other people. They were always ready to pull out a book of the prophets and show other people that they were lost. And thus, Jesus said, whoa. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. Verse 36, I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. These were a people who received the greatest prophets in the history of the world. They were the recipients of the greatest preaching in the world. But they turned their backs upon truth and they closed their ears. Self-righteous, scheming, lovers of money. It says in one manuscript, they would go to a widow and rob her of her home. And then they would cover this up by making long prayers in public. Long prayers in public are usually not a show of piety, but of some abominable sin in the life. And so Jesus said, woe, woe, woe. Verse 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem has been desolate ever since the Lord of glory left the temple. And if my evangelical friends would only understand scripture, they would understand the truth about the Middle East. 
And so in the context of religious hypocrisy and pious humbugs who love the best seats in the synagogue and who love to be called Dr. Doctor. Jesus gives the sermon that has been called uh, the little apocalypse. Today, plain preaching is not acceptable in North America. On the whole, we want softly spoken psychology preachers who will say, you're okay, I'm okay. What would you do with Jesus who said, you snakes, how can you escape being sent to hell? No wonder we crucified him. No wonder we crucified him. Because most of us do not come to church to hear the word of God. We simply come to socialize or to be fed. Not on the word of God. Jesus said, how can you escape being sent to hell? Jesus believed in hell. As I read these chapters, and they have shaken me up, I read of hell, damnation, weeping and gnashing of teeth, darkness. But of course, America wants a lying gospel that says all will be saved. We want Bishops in churches who are practicing homosexuals and are afraid of the word of God. Jesus would say, how can you escape being sent to hell? And so he left the temple. And when he left the temple, the temple was desolate and the temple in Jerusalem is no more holy today than my backyard. Because only the presence of God can make anything holy. And so Jesus, when he gives the great judgment upon the world and religious hypocrites, he gives these prophecies in Matthew 24. Did you know this context was there? Verse 4, Jesus answered, Here are the signs, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am Messiah will deceive many. Religious deception is the biggest thing that's going on today in America because congregations are so awfully naive. Have you not seen on some of the great television programs an orator and a bunch of people sitting in the pews who never turn up the texts? Never, never, never. And the preacher is quoting one text in the sermon and telling a heap of funny jokes and the people are laughing their heads off. Jesus would say, how can you escape being sent to hell? To preachers and congregations that don't bring their Bibles to church, who are too lazy to bring their Bibles to church and are too too indolent to read their Bibles every day. How can you escape being sent to hell? And so Jesus talks about religious deception and remember that in the last days the power 
right here in this country becomes the false prophet of iniquity. The false prophet is a liar and a deceiver. Do you wish to be deceived? Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains. We are seeing the beginning of the birth pains today. A great time of trouble comes upon the world and upon the church before the second coming, not after the second coming, as is taught by those who misunderstand Bible prophecy. Verse 9, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We are living in the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy. In this community, Adventist church that I love and have given my life's blood for, I've seen in a period of five years some 25 elders apostatize or give up the truth or turn away. I've never seen it in 40 years of ministry. I can only say it is a sign of the end. That the love of most will grow cold. And their love grows cold because they are so involved with the gold that they care not for Christ. How can you escape being sent to hell? Jesus said. Would you read on? Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. I happen to have seen at least partially the fulfillment of this prophecy. We are living in the day when God will finish his work and cut it short in righteousness. Let me look you in the eye and tell you, my American friends, something that probably most preachers won't tell you. The church is asleep in this part of the world. We can tell it by the small numbers who come to Bible study on Sabbath morning. Why? Oh, in bed, it's only church. We can tell it by the lateness of the hour when people come to church. I'm glad they come at all, but why so late? I can tell it by the paucity of people who go to church on Wednesday night to study the word. The coldness in the heart, the worldliness, the sinfulness, the slothfulness, the love of money, and the closing of the ears to the word of God. Give us a psychology preacher. How can you escape being sent to hell? The man or the woman 
who takes his son or his daughter knowing the truth about the Sabbath and takes that boy or girl to sports on the Sabbath knowing the truth, how can you escape being sent to hell? You say, I'm going to find me a church where I've got a preacher who can tell me I can do what I like and go to heaven. Let me tell you something, do so. That enjoy this life, it's the only heaven you're going to know. How can you escape being sent to hell? Said Jesus. Verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. This is the coming of the great Antichrist and the armies of the Romans against Jerusalem in in 70 AD, but which is a type of the last great conflict of religious deception in the world. And if you are a student of history and if you understand Bible prophecy, you can see how these events are taking place as the bastion of freedom fulfills Bible prophecy. People say, we don't preach that anymore in America. We'll offend people. I would sooner offend you and go to heaven than please you and go to hell with you. The abomination of desolation, it is here. You say, we don't understand these things. When last did you come on Wednesday night? When last did you read your Bible? Then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. This happened in 70 or 66 AD. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. I say to my evangelical friends, how can you dismiss this text that says very plainly that the Sabbath is a test in the last days? For then there'll be great distress unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, the people of God, those days will be shortened. Listen to me. The Bible teaches, this is a hard truth, self-satisfied Christians to believe. What do they say when a person's blood is not strong, doesn't have enough iron? What do you call that? Nemic. Anemia. This is not a message for people who are suffering from spiritual anemia. And the Bible says before the end The abomination of desolation comes. He stands in the holy place. That's not Jerusalem. People say, ah, yes, but that's Jerusalem. Hey, it's not Jerusalem because Jesus left the temple and he said, it's desolate. Can't be desolate and holy. Jesus says, it comes tremendous spiritual conflict in the church and in the world. And this leads to the great tribulation. And if God didn't cut short those days, none of the saints would survive. That's proof enough that the saints are on the earth. 
But you see, that's an unpopular doctrine because so many of us are into the prosperity gospel that we want to think that we can have a great time and be wealthy and no tribulation and we're raptured home to glory and hallelujah, we're going to miss it all. That's not the gospel of the Bible. That's an anemic gospel. I want to tell you something. If you read these texts and study the signs of the times, it is obvious the time is running out. I have folks who come to me with a sneer. They'll say, we've heard all that stuff before. We may have a thousand years. Oh, you're going to live a thousand years, are you? What a foolish argument. The coming of the Lord is no farther removed than our deaths. When I die, time stops for me. The next thing I know, it is judgment day and the coming of the Lord. If you and I sitting here today have an artery break which is a possibility for every one of us it is the second coming that is why Jesus said in such an hour as you think not so these verses here describe I would suggest to you our day verse 30 at the time the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect, the church, from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So, can you please get... CNN or Fox out of your mind for a moment and visualize the heavens on fire and in the midst of the cloud is the Son of God surrounded by billions and billions of angels coming to save his people and to punish the religious hypocrites. Listen to this. This is quite a concept. Almost every time in scripture when judgment is alluded to, it is not in the context of the world. It is in the context of the church. The world is lost. The church is summoned to judgment. When he comes, it is too late to turn to God. The need, the necessity for a right relationship to God is emphasized in verse 36 and onwards. 
No one knows about that day or hour, not, a, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, people were doing lots of good things. They were eating and drinking and they were having lots of potlucks in church. They were having a great time. They could hardly wait to get out of church to feed their gluttony. And gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins. No glutton will be saved. No no, the Bible says it. Gluttons who are reformed, yes. I don't like this, you say. You better find out now or else how can you escape being sent to hell? So in the days before the flood, lots of pleasure making, lots of joking, lots of laughing, lots of frivolity. Flood took them all away. There was no laughing as they were drowning. There was no laughing when they were drowning. Say, I don't want to hear this. That's fine. But you'll never be the same again because you've seen today the judgment. Read on. Verse Forty-two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. One taken to salvation, the other left as a corpse on the earth. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Some saved, some lost. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So this chapter fraught with eternal significance brings us to the judgment bar of God to confront the issue, am I right with God? We have alluded to the gospel. The gospel is the key to everything. A true understanding of the gospel leads us to these conclusions. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. I'm not saved because I'm good enough. I'm not saved by my works. I'm not saved by my attempts to obey God. I am saved by Christ alone, by grace alone. Everything I need for salvation is in the pages of this book. Grace alone, faith alone. I'm not saved by faith. Some would say, well, when I have enough faith, I'll be saved. You're not saved by your faith. You're saved by Christ. You are saved through faith, through faith, through faith, through faith. 
People say, but I don't have enough faith. A baby doesn't have a lot of muscle in its arm, but a little baby can pick up some food and put it in the mouth. It is not the amount of the faith. It is the faith, however small, that connects us to Christ, the Savior. Otherwise, we would make faith a Savior. Faith is not a Savior. It connects us to the Savior. So the person here today with the weakest of faith can be saved. You see? So it's Scripture alone. Christ alone. Sola Christus. Grace alone. Faith alone. That is the gospel. The gospel is centered in Christ. Would you like to know how you can tell the difference between a true church and a cult? A cult talks about the church. A cult talks about its wonderful successors and its wonderful organization. Behold us, the church. That's a cult, not the body of Christ. The true church talks about Christ, magnifies Christ, and teaches that we are all a bunch of sinners and can only be saved by Christ. That's the message of the true church. If you go to a great church convention and all they talk about is, boy, we got a great organization. Look at us. You're not in the true church, you're in a cult. Now, there may be true Christians there, but every cult magnifies itself. The true church magnifies the Lord. And so here we have Matthew 23, religious charlatans. This chapter is given in the context of hypocrites and the judgments of God. Then in Matthew 24, you have these remarkable signs that are being fulfilled today. And Jesus says, with the urgency of the Son of God, therefore be ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. But now I come to the most important part of the sermon that I must confess I have pretty much missed for many years. I'm an Adventist. But we Adventists often take the chapter about the Advent out of the context. And we do not realize that chapter 25 is a part of the sermon. And so we finish in chapter 24 and we miss out on the conclusion. You say, now, what on earth is he talking about? Listen to me, look at me. Now you know as well as I do We've seen in Matthew 23, there are lots and lots of people who spiritually are all mouth. Always debating. Haven't you seen them? 
the Pharisees were the world's greatest debaters. Always debating, always discussing, always arguing over some point of truth. Always building their faith upon the rectitude of their theology. Oh, we got it right, you know. We got it right. And we think that we are saved because we have our theology perfect. Let me tell you, only God has got his theology perfect. None of us have got our theology perfect. So you got lots of people who are talking religion. Lots of people who are preaching. Lots of people who are pastors. Lots of people who are church administrators and leaders and all the rest of it. And lots of people going to church. But if I read these chapters aright, it doesn't seem like everybody's going to heaven, does it? Doesn't seem like it. So how can I know that I have a genuine experience with God? How can I know? Well, the most important part of a sermon, if it's a good sermon and if you have a good preacher, is the last part of the sermon where it comes to our climax. Now, Jesus was the greatest of all preachers. Chapter 24, he started out, he built his case, but in chapter 25, he comes to the climax. And this is what we never read in the context of Matthew 24. Please notice the climax. Notice the therefore. Matthew 25. It is the same sermon, remember, the sermon that was given from the Mount of Olives. Verse 31. When the Son of Man, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so he's on the same theme, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now notice the last words of the sermon he preached on the second coming. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Goodness me. Who would have expected it? You see the problem? Too often the people who talk about the advent are still in Matthew 23. The people in Matthew 23 were outwardly religious, but they were hard, mean, selfish, and their lives revolved around me, 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 me. And they wanted to be seen, but they didn't want to be clean. That's the problem. But you see, People who are saved, the Adventists who are saved, are people who have specialized in people, who are kind, who are hospitable. How hospitable are you? You say, I'm not hospitable at all. I say, how can you escape being sent to hell? I say to you and me, how many naked people have we closed how many prisons have we visited recently? You say, I don't do those things. I keep the teachings of the Bible and the church and I read the church manual. How can you escape being sent to hell? The people who are saved are the people who care for the weakest among us. Babies. Unborn babies. Sick people, people who are treated like nothing in the world. You see, that makes the difference between a Pharisee and a follower of Jesus. How we treat people. In the final analysis in the judgment, I will not be judged by my sharpness of mind and how I've worked out some dates and some prophecies and even though those things are important and lots of other truths, I will be judged by how I treated people who are in need. The gospel changes the life and makes Hard people, soft. Scrooges, 
into Mary Magdalene's. If you know what I'm talking about. Scrooge, so tight. Mary Magdalene gave everything. If you and I are right on doctrine, but we're mean and selfish, and our religion is the me, 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 the words are appropriate, how can you escape being sent to hell? Christianity, true Christianity, which is the gospel of grace, makes people gracious and generous. Let me tell you folks something. Is it not tragic that so many who pride themselves on being called Adventists are not recognized as being kind and gracious and generous and soft-hearted. But Jesus said, how we relate to people, the people who cross our paths every day, who are in need, that determines whether we are sheep or goats. Jesus said that was the essence of his teachings. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Let us kneel. Our Father in heaven, it is very difficult for us who live in a world that teaches materialism, capitalism, the gratification of every need. It's very hard for us to live in such a world and not be affected and infected. We thank you for the teachings of Jesus that are so refreshing to the whitewashed theology that we often have poured upon us from pulpits. Help us to realize that being a disciple will lift us out of Matthew 23 where people are pious pretenders who love money, who love praise, who love the best seats in the synagogue and in the church, who are outwardly respectable but inwardly filthy. Dear Lord, in a way that uh, we can't comprehend, turn us into the sheep of Matthew 25. As we've studied the little apocalypse, this book that is amplified in Revelation today, Matthew 24, it is obvious that the world is coming to its climax and the king of the universe is going to intervene. And then... 
Jesus is going to welcome home those who are his children. The whole world is going to be there. When he sits upon his throne, he's going to separate them as a sheep divides the sheep from the goats. Lord, today, make us your sheep. As we're praying in church today, with the Spirit of God here, ministering to our hearts, how many will say today, Lord, may I so receive your gospel that I will be made a sheep, that I will be one of your disciples who has a genuine care for people, not because it's put on, but because I have received grace alone through faith alone, and I'm trusting in Christ alone. If you want to be a sheep today rather than a goat, would you raise your hands? Sheep rather than a goat. Lift up your hands high. Dear Lord, we raise our hands today after we've had this confrontation with you in this church and we've met you. And some folks here, maybe visitors here, Lord, are a bit probably in a state of shock. But help them to realize that they have been deceived all their lives. And now God is calling them to follow him. Open our eyes, dear Lord. Forgive us for our sins, especially the sins of, that are mentioned in Matthew 23, wanting to be first. The man who has the check blown up a million times and gives it and everybody says, hip, hip, hooray. The man who wants to be first in the church. Oh God, have mercy on us. Forgive our sins, dear Lord. Wash us in the blood of Jesus and make us your sheep today. We worship you, bless you, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.